Well, amen, it's good to be with you this morning. We have a good, good father, amen. Oh, man. Singing that song this morning. Oh, it just, and hearing Larissa talk about it, man, I was just so moved. And um, that's really good news today. And typically on a Father's Day, of course, I would be sharing a little bit about uh, the Father heart of God. And certainly there's a lot to talk about from Scripture about the Father heart of God. But we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction today, and which you will see in a few minutes. But I do want to wish all the fathers out there today a happy Father's Day. May God richly bless you today. And my prayer for you, as I've been praying this morning, is that, and I include myself in this because I'm a father, I have young kids. No matter how old your kids are, I pray that all of us as dads would have the Father heart of God in us. Amen? We'd be a little bit more like our Father, our Heavenly Father as we raise our kids and as we go about loving them and fathering them, even if they're young or even if they're adults, that we would have the Father heart of God towards them. And I pray that that would happen even today. And the reality is we've been singing about our good, good Father. And today we're talking about identity markers. Now, two weeks ago, uh, I brought up the issue and the topic of where we got our identity from. Was anybody here for that message a couple weeks ago? A few of you? Good, okay. And then last week, Pastor Amy talked a little bit about, um, okay, if our identity is in Christ, what does that mean? How are we to live out our lives? Uh, How are we to behave? And today I want to dive back into our identity in Christ and really what that means. And I really believe that if we, as we look upon who God is and the Father heart of God, we start to see some identity markers, some traits, some things that he really wants to imprint on us. Amen? About who we actually are. Um, and we're going to talk about that today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't we turn to the book of Ephesians. And we were there two weeks ago. We're going to go there again today. Ephesians chapter 1. Give you a moment to get there. I want you to bear with me. We're going to read through all of Ephesians 1, or at least most of it. Sorry, not all of it. A good, well, I take that back. Half of it. There we go. <laughs> we're going to read through a lot of it. And then we're going to jump to Ephesians 2 uh, shortly after. Ephesians 1, here we go. We're going to read together. It's on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people, in Ephesus. Pause. Holy people there, in a lot of translations, just says saints, to the saints in Ephesus. We'll talk about that. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the, praise be, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Amen. That he lavished on us. 
With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed uh, in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we... That's us, all of us, who were first to put our hope in Christ, maybe uh, for the praise of his glory. And you also, all of us, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. That's great. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, chapter 2, here we go. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air. We talked about this two weeks ago. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That used to be all of us, right? All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is so rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. As God raised us up with Christ Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Some translations say masterpiece. Wow. We are God's masterpiece or a handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Can anyone say amen to any of this stuff that we read today? This is some good stuff. We can all go home now, and I'd be satisfied in the word. Amen. Some good scripture right there. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll move forward. Jesus, I thank you today for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's powerful. Lord, thank you that it has the power to change our lives, Lord, when we read it, when we apply it, and when we obey it. And God, I just pray that today we would not only be hearers of your word, but Lord, we'd be doers of your word. And God, I just thank you today for your anointing, for your grace, Lord, that makes all this possible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, in the early morning of the 31st of August, 2004, uh, just over a decade ago, about 12 years ago, a man was found behind the bins of a Burger King outlet in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Uh, he was semi-naked and unresponsive with evidence of blunt force trauma to his head. And later he regained consciousness but could remember almost nothing, not even his name. He was taken to a local hospital and, of course, uh, he had to be admitted to the hospital, but there was a problem. The hospital already had a John Doe, and he didn't know his name, but they had to admit him with some name. And so they admitted him with the name Benjamin Kyle. And he never recovered his memory, and so he ended up keeping the name Benjamin Kyle because he had no other name to go by. This is a true story. Benjamin never regained his consciousness, or his, his memory, sorry, he regained his consciousness, yes. He never regained his memory, and as a result, okay, he encountered many problems over the years with this new identity. He went years with this. Officials would not give him a social security number because they figured he already had one somewhere, under some name, and because he had no social security number, he could not get a job. He could not get a photo ID. 
could not get a mailing address or a place to live. In fact, he could not even stay in a homeless shelter because all the homeless shelters in his area required some, required some kind of ID to prove that you are who you say you are. Whether it's a, a piece of mail, a photo white, something. But he couldn't get anything. Interestingly, he became the only American citizen in history officially listed as missing despite his whereabouts being known. <laughs> True story. He appeared on numerous newscasts and even the Dr. Phil show as people from all across America watched in amazement at this peculiar case. And then finally, in September of 2015, Benjamin announced to the world on his Facebook page that he had found his true identity and his family due in large part to the work of a well-known geneticist. And they, uh, kind of some of these people who help people who've been adopted to trace their real family. And uh, he, yeah, he, he found out who he really was. And a uh, very interesting story, isn't it? Um, and it's a true story again. And you know, really, I'm thinking about this, and the reality is for more than a decade, Benjamin struggled to know who he was. And I would argue today that he missed out on so many things that we all take for granted because he didn't know who he was, what his true identity was, and all of the basic needs and privileges and advantages, again, he missed out on all because he didn't know his true identity. Friends, I, I think, when I, when I think about it, I wonder if this kind of describes maybe some of us today. Perhaps missing out on all that God would have for us because we don't know our true identity in Christ. All the potential that existed within Benjamin could not be met because he didn't know his identity. And sadly, that could be perhaps the case for some of us today. You see, God has a plan, a purpose, things for us to do. He's wired us all in a certain way. And I believe today that we will never achieve the true reason why we were created unless we know who we are in Christ. There's so much potential in each one of you. So much. Why? Because God created you. God did, right? How many think that God creates things with a purpose? He's not just creating things haphazardly for no good reason, right? It's like what Mr. T said, no, God don't make junk, right? (laughs) He doesn't just haphazardly, he made each one of us with a plan and a purpose and we will not realize all the potential within us unless we know who we are in Christ. Even at those in the world, I believe, who are seemingly doing amazing things in life and in the world and, and, and famous people, who successful people, I would argue that if they don't know who they are in Christ, they're not reaching their true potential because they're not living out perhaps the very plans and purposes God created them for. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how many of us sometimes unknowingly get our identity from the world system the culture in which we lived, and we talked about how subtly sometimes cultural worldviews creeps in, uh, creeps its way into the church. And we talked about how ultimately we don't uh, get our identity, discover our identity, achieve our identity just from looking inwardly, which is what the world teaches us. Just look deep inside and find out who you are and live that out. It just doesn't work that way. It's far more complicated than that. And we talked a lot about that and and about rather than doing what the culture would say, uh, but that we need to find our identity in Christ. 
However, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about what that actually means. We took a lot of time kind of leading up to it. And, and then last week, Pastor Amy did an awesome job discussing that, you know, if we are indeed in Christ, then that's going to have some responsibility as far as our behavior. And I agree with her 100%. And it was, it was a very powerful sermon, challenging, convicting perhaps sermon. And it was very needed. That we cannot conform, if we are in Christ, we cannot conform to the patterns and customs of this world. And yet the reality is, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit, the reality is, is that what you do, your behavior, really it flows from who you are. Does that make sense? It flows from who you are. And so when you have an understanding of what your identity is in Christ, if you truly know who you are, it's going to cause you to behave, I believe, in the right way. When you truly know who you are in Christ, you're, you, you, you have an understanding of this. You have a grasp of your identity in Christ. It's going to help you live a godly, set-apart life for him. We cannot do it on our own. I don't care how talented you are, how smart you are. None of us are good enough. We cannot live out this life. Sin is a powerful foe <laughs> that wants to overtake us, but we have the identity of Christ and we can live out this life in that identity and we can be successful. You know, We are not compelled, I think, to live a holy and blameless lives as Christians just because if we don't, God might smite us, although he could. <laughs> no, for those of us in Christ, we want to live holy and set-apart lives. We're not just doing it because God might toast us. <laughs> We're doing it because we, we want to. Because of God's great love and mercy for us, our response to him is to live in such a way that our lives are an act of worship unto him and I'm gonna live for him, amen? That's really what our motivation should be as believers. Yes, God could smite us, but he loves us, you know what? But our response should be to live out in holiness before him. So what is being in Christ mean we see it in the book of Ephesians all over chapter 1 and 2 and all throughout the book and this has a lot to do with our identity a lot of commentators and scholars they actually would say the whole theme of the book of Ephesians has to do with identity so what does being in Christ mean I'm glad you asked we're going to talk about it <laughs> uh, R.K. Hughes the commentator he is saying from my perspective in Christ far outstrips the term Christian wow in describing Christianity. Aside from the fact that Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, that's besides the point, that title allows for an ambiguous interpretation, especially in our world today. It can mean one who has specific cultural affinity or the Western tradition, or one who lives on one side of barbed wire and is killing those on the other side. You guys have heard a lot of stuff like this over the, over the years, I'm sure. But in Christ, who says that? Right? In Christ invites no such abuse because it demands reflection on a dynamic living relationship. So what does it mean? Being in Christ is about truly being followers of Christ. It's about what it really means to truly be a Christian, right? But having an understanding about who we really are. Now the good news is that those who are in Christ, those who desire to live a holy and set-apart life, we are not left to try to figure out how to do this on our own strength or intellect or ability. That's good news. I don't know. I'm going to say maybe I should speak for myself. I would not measure up. Would you? No? Well, none of us would, right? 
Commentator Klein Snodgrass says this, as our friend from last week, Christ is the place, I want you to catch this, Christ is the place where believers reside, the source in which they find God's salvation and blessings, and the framework in which they live and work. It is as if Christ were a vast repository The person of Christ himself, he's a vast repository holding the gifts of God, but of course without losing any sense of Christ as person. Christ is the source of all spiritual blessings, and because believers reside in him, they can enjoy those blessings. What are those blessings? This has to do with our identity. These are the things that I believe that will help us, strengthen us, empower us, motivate us to live the life and the behavior that we should live as Christians, as believers, as those who are representing Christ on earth. And when we look into Ephesians, we see a number of these spiritual blessings. And and it says that uh, in Ephesians, in in, in, uh, uh, verse 3, it says, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we see a number of these things that are brought out in Ephesians that I believe will ultimately help us live the life He's called us to live. And we're going to go through those right now. So, I want to encourage you, take some notes, okay? We've already established two weeks ago that those who take notes in church are more scientifically proven to get to heaven, okay? So we want to make sure that we take notes. And the reason is because, um, I'm just going to keep saying that every time I preach until the last die down. I'm just going to keep saying it. Um, Because last week we had two points in the sermon. Um, This week we have ten, so buckle up. Here we go. All right. We're going to get through it. First, the first uh, spiritual blessing that we need to understand about our identity in God that will help us live the life he's called us to live is firstly, that we are chosen by God. We are chosen by God. This is good news. In verse 3 and 4 of Ephesians 1, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He chose us. Before he even created the world. I mean, is God, wow, does he know that much? Yes. Can he see that far in the future? Yes. You know, I have a question for you. Have you ever been chosen for something? Something special? Have you ever been chosen for something special? Like on this earth, like, you know. Have you ever been chosen for something unexpected? That was, you know, like, whoa, I was not expecting that. You choose me? Wow. You know what I'm talking about? That's a pretty good feeling, right? That's a pretty good feeling. You know, I'm kind of thinking about in, in a couple weeks' time, the NHL draft is going to come, and all these young men are going to come, and, 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 and teams are going to choose them. And it's like, wow, you chose me. And, and, and some lucky guy is going to go first overall. He's going to get chosen. It's just a special position to get first overall, although he may have conflicting feelings because first overall is going to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and they stink. But anyways, I don't know how. He might have some conflicting feelings on that. But if you're a Leafs fan, you're happy. Um, But when you've been chosen for something, something special, something unexpected, you feel great about that. Wow. The reality is God chose you and I. It's his choice. Charles Stanley says, So many children grow up being told by their parents, we never really wanted you. This is true. You were an accident. You were a surprise. But the truth from God's perspective is something entirely different. God always wanted you. 
You were part of his design and plan from the foundation of the earth. You were intended, expected, and created by God for precisely this time and for a precise role and purpose. Hear me out, friends. God always wanted you. He chose you from the foundation of the earth. Hallelujah. Praise God. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. God chooses you, and you did not do anything to earn that choosing. Nothing. Take it even a step further, it says in verse 5 of chapter 1, that it gave God great pleasure in choosing you. It wasn't just that he reluctantly chose you. You know, I kind of alluded to this two weeks ago. It's not like, if you remember back in the playground as kids, you know, got two team captains all line up, okay, we're going to play some ball, okay, I pick you. And then the other person's like, okay, I pick you. And then, okay, I pick Johnny, and someone, I pick Susan, and we're all picking teams, and all of a sudden there's one poor soul left at the end, Someone's got to take, all right, come with us, right? And you reluctantly take them on your team. And if that was you growing up, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's not how God chooses us. He's not reluctantly taking, all right, I guess no one else wants you. You can come with me. It says it gave God great pleasure in choosing you. It makes God happy that he chose you. Me? Really? Man, I'm pretty terrible. (laughs) It gives God great pleasure, the Bible says. Again, Charles Stanley says, none of us can ever fathom God's grace in choosing us. Nothing you ever did or could do put you in a position to be chosen by God. You didn't say the right things or do the right things or become the right person. God chose you because he wanted to choose you and because he desired to be in a relationship with you. He made a a sovereign choice totally from his own motivation of love and mercy. Wow. Do you want to live for God because of that? I do. Boy, that should motivate us, amen? God chose, you know, it's not, it's not my performance that determines if God chose me. He chooses me, whether or not my performance is good or, or not, or not. He chose me. So I'm motivated to live for him. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. We can never earn it or achieve it. And God chose us out of grace, not because we deserve anything, but because he loves us. This should help us live the life that we're called to live. Second identity point here is that we are adopted. We are adopted into his family. It says in verse 4, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now all you people, don't get freaked out on the gender neutrality of this, okay? Like our national anthem where the people in Ottawa are trying to change our anthem, all thy sons command, oh, that's not gender inclusive. Look, if you know anything about the English language, you know that this actually includes all people. Study something that's that's not written in the last, you know, few years. Study some older English, read some older books. Okay, this is actually gender inclusive. It includes all people. When God says he's adopted us to sonship, it's not just for guys. This is for all of us. We're all adopted as children of God. He even goes on to say it, just right there in the chapter. He adopts us as children into his family. All right? This is good news as well, because you know what? This is a part of God's family. This is an awesome thing. And, and uh, Charles, I'm quoting a bit from Charles Stanley here today. I don't think, yes, I do have it here, okay? He says, adoption in the time of Paul was, uh, was writing was a little different from what it is today. A father in Rome might disown a natural-born child, but a father could not, he could not, Catch this. He could disown his own child, but he cannot legally disown an adopted child. This is a legal standing. Adopted children had full rights as a child to all the father might, uh, to all, sorry, 
had full rights as a child to all that a father might leave as an inheritance and to the full use of the father's name. So we have full use of our father's name. This is good. Adoption was highly prized in Rome because it carried with it a great legal, or it carried with it great legal privileges and societal recognition in a culture in which natural-born children were often overlooked, discarded, or shut out of a father's presence. Adopted children were conveyed the full rights of sonship. Wow. We have a legal standing before God. We are part of his family. Amen? You know, Pastor Amy was awesome last week. She alluded to this, and this perhaps was challenging to you, but it is right. You know, that the Bible puts a way higher priority on the family of God than it actually does our own families, biological families. Did you guys know that? Now, that doesn't mean we neglect our biological, you know. I mean, we abandon our families and just go and live at the church on the pew or something. My wife probably thinks I do that sometimes, but anyways. Um, I do come home every night. Anyways. Um, the family of God, right? It says that, that we conveyed the full rights of sonship. We, we have the, uh, the name of the family, right? We're adopted into his family. We get the family name. Guess what? It's not just Darren O'Coin. Okay, that's my name. But you know what? I'm Darren's son, you know, a child of the king. I bear his name. You know what? We read it in Revelations, you know, that we carry his name on our forehead. That's who we are. We're children of the Most High God. And guess what? We're all family together, right? Part of his family. And I tell you what, we need to start getting along because the reality is, look, it's, it's sad to say, but man, unless our biological families receive Christ, we may not be with them in eternity. But if you've received Christ, we're all going to be in eternity in heaven together. So you may not like me now, but you're stuck with me forever, Okay? <laughs> So this is the family of God. This is high priority stuff. And we carry the name of our father on our foreheads. And we are part of his family. Adopted into his family. In Romans 8 it says, The spirit you received, Apostle Paul writing, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We cry, Abba, Father. It's an intimate relationship with our Father. We sing, good, good Father. You know what? This term, Abba, Father, is a very intimate term. It's kind of like, like Daddy, right? Like, like my kids, they're really small, and they come running up to me, and they say, Daddy. And they come and give me a big hug, and they're not very tall, so they only hug my leg. And, and, you know, and whether or not they're sad or they're excited or whatever, they come, Daddy. But that's how we can come to our Heavenly Father. And if that doesn't change the way you live your life, if that doesn't change your perspective on how to live and how to go about your day, I don't know what will. I have a heavenly father that loves me just as I love my kids, no matter how boneheaded they may be sometimes, no matter the mistakes they make sometimes. Guess what? I love them no matter what. No matter what. They're my kids. That's how God looks at us. This is who we are. It's our identity. Next, we are a beloved child. It says that in love he predestined us to adoption. He, he did it because he loved us. Why did he choose us? Why did he adopt us? We just said it, because he loves us. You know, a lot of people have a hard time accepting or understanding 
the love of God. Is that true? We have a hard time internalizing that sometimes. Maybe, maybe you don't. It took me a little while when I came to Christ. It took me a few years, actually, to kind of really internalize that. I don't know if you have a hard time accepting God's love for you. Do you find yourself questioning it or putting conditions on it? Rejecting it? Again, Charles Stanley, I don't know if we have it here. Yes, we do. He says, many people have a difficult time accepting the love of God. Others accept God's love but place conditions on it. Why is it so important that we acknowledge and accept God's unconditional love as part of our spiritual identity? Well, certainly one of the reasons, because to the degree in which we receive unconditional love is directly linked to the degree we are able to give unconditional love to others. We can't, we can't love if we've not been loved. We can't, not the way God calls us to. You know, it's, we, Pastor Paul has said it many times over the years, at least since I've been here. Settle down deep within your soul. We need to settle it. Case closed. God loves me. God loves you. Settle that down deep within your soul. Don't ever question that. No matter where you, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how many times you've messed it up or, or fallen into sin or whatever the case may be, settle it in your heart. God loves you. God loves you. Okay? No matter what my kids do in life, I will always love them. You know, someone this week, I kind of laugh, apologized to me for something, just hoping I wasn't offended by something they said. And I just kind of laughed. I mean, there was nothing to be offended about at all. Um, but I just kind of chuckled. I said, offended? I'm like, wow. No, to be honest, I can't remember the last time I was really offended. And you say, well, Darren, how is that possible? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I choose not to be offended. I just choose not to be. Why? Because I'm called to love people. Because I've experienced the love of God. Because I know no matter how many times I may say stupid things <laughs> or make mistakes... Guess what, pastors, we do a lot of talking. It's inevitable. We're going to say something dumb sometimes, okay? No matter how many times I put my foot in my mouth, no matter how many things I do wrong, I know God loves me unconditionally. I know how much he puts up with me. I know how patient he is with me. And so if someone comes and says something that may be offensive to me, how could I take offense when God has forgiven me of so much? So I choose not to be offended. I just love and, and this, like I said, there was nothing to be offended about this comment at all. But, you know, it's interesting. I've had so many people over the years, at times as a pastor, you know, you're on the front lines. And, 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 you know, I've had years of people have said all kinds of crazy stuff to me over the years about how they think church should be, how they think I should be doing my job, how they think, you know. And I'm not accountable to them. Uh, uh, but they're, they're, I've had people coming and almost screaming at me after the service. And right in the sanctuary, they're yelling at me because they're unhappy about how I'm doing things. I'm thinking, this is not the place or time. Stop yelling. Can we meet in my office quietly? <laughs> I just love them. I just love them. I'm not offended. I've said dumb things too. <laughs> you know. You have to, <laughs> just so you know. So we are a beloved child of God. It says in Romans chapter 8, Verse 35 to 39. Yet in all these things, here's a key to our identity, right? 
the behavior that we're called to live. All these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. That's who we are, friends. This should cause us to shout amen. You know, what's our response to his love? I've already alluded to it. Three things, okay? We need to accept God's love. We need to accept it. Right? We need to understand it. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. We need to accept it. We need to live in God's love. 1 John 4 says to abide in his love. That means we're living, we are abiding, we are, are, are settling, we are living in his love daily. Okay. And then number three, we need to love others. Just as I talked about, no matter what people are saying to you, how crazy people may be getting about you, you know what, you need to love others. Do not be offended, love them. It doesn't matter what they say or do, love them. The Bible says, love your enemies, right? Jesus says in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I love you. That's how we respond to being a beloved child of God. This is who we are. We're chosen by God. We're adopted. We are a beloved child. Moving on. We are forgiven. Hallelujah. Forgiven of our sins, it says in verse 7. And it says in 1 John 1, 9. I love this. You guys know this. We have to understand this. It says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. Amen? This is a promise of Scripture. And the reason why I'm getting excited is because sometimes we have a hard time with this. Right? Sometimes we feel this, this guilt. Yeah, we should feel some guilt of sin. sin. Sin brings guilt and shame, yes. There needs to be a godly remorse, yes. But when we come to Christ and we ask for him, to, we humble ourselves before him and we're remorseful of our sin and we ask him to forgive our sin, guess what? The Bible just says, and I, I just read it, that he is faithful and he will forgive us. It's done. Right? We may have a few consequences here on earth we need to deal with. We may have to apologize to someone whom we've hurt. Okay. But with your standing before God, you are forgiven. You are clean. Hallelujah. I, I, I think we should get more excited than that. I just, I just, I'm really happy about this, okay? <laughs> Charles Stanley, again, he says, many people experience God's forgiveness, but then suffer from lingering guilt over their past sins. To continue to hang on to guilt after receiving God's forgiveness is to say to God, your forgiveness wasn't enough. The challenge for many of us is to accept God's total forgiveness and then to forgive ourselves and move forward in our lives. To hang on to guilt and shame is to devalue what Christ did on the cross. So what's our response? If we are forgiven, if we understand this, what's our response? Let me tell you what our response is. To live in repentance. What? What does that mean? Let me give you a a picture of what living in repentance means. It means that at one point in time, I was walking this way. My eyes were, my, my, my mind, my eyes were focused on the world. I'm living for worldly things and it's sin and it's lust and whatever it is. I'm doing my own thing and I, Christ is not in the picture and I'm walking this way. And then all of a sudden, I come to Christ 
and I repent, and now I'm living a repentant life, and that means now my eyes are focused on Christ, and I'm moving towards him, and by glory to glory, I'm being changed more into his uh, image and more into his likeness, but as I'm walking towards him, my back towards the world, I may trip and stumble a little bit along the way, all right, but I get back up, and I'm moving still forward towards him. My back is still, to, this is what living in repentance is, all right? Continue, living a life of continual repentance is not a bad thing. It doesn't, really the issue is not how many times you trip up, but the issue is how many times you get back up again and you put your eyes back on Jesus and keep moving forward. Because he is transforming us from glory to glory. And by faith, you know what? This is why I get excited about saying he is faithful and just and will forgive us. It's not because I've got it all together because goodness knows I don't. But I tell you what, as my eyes are focused on Jesus, I'm crazy enough to believe that he does forgive my sins. The word says it, I'm going to believe it in faith. Therefore, I'm going to keep going. And by God's grace, one day I will arrive. By God's grace, one day I will get to his throne room. And hopefully, by God's grace again, he's going to say, well done. You didn't have it all together, but you kept your eyes on me. And you kept moving forward. That's what we need to do. That's our response today to being forgiven. Number five, we are redeemed. Isn't this a great list? Aren't you excited? Well, we're only at number five, and there's like ten points. We've got to get moving. All right. You are redeemed. Now, what does redeemed mean? When you redeem something, it means you, 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 you obtain it. Someone purchased it, either you or someone else, but when you redeem something, it, it, was, it was purchased, it was bought with some kind of price. And the Bible says that we are redeemed through his blood. Right, So the blood of Jesus purchased us unto himself. We are bought with the price. Our lives are not our own. Again, this is who we are, our identity. And I want to say as well that we are redeemed from death, from the consequences of our sin. Right, The Bible says we were dead in transgressions and sin, but then we were made alive in Christ. We were redeemed from death, but we were also redeemed for a purpose. It is because we are redeemed that God deems us useful in his kingdom, to help promote his kingdom values and plans. This is who we are, friends. This should cause us to live in an extraordinary way, all these things. So we are chosen by God. This is our identity. We are adopted. We're a beloved child. We are forgiven. We are redeemed, bought with a price. Next, we are a member. We are a member of the body. Again, this is coming back to the family of God. I said we're all family, but, but the analogy in the scripture is a little more detailed when we start getting into, into the imagery of the body. The church is the body of Christ, the scripture tells us, and that we all have, uh, we're all different parts of the body. You know, someone might be a leg, someone might be an eye, someone might be a nose, it doesn't matter, right? But how many know that, at least most of us really hope that all of our body parts are working properly, Right? And when they're all working properly, life just goes a lot more smoother. It's the same thing in the church. If we are all parts of the body, when we all do our part and we all function the way we're supposed to function, the whole church is a whole lot more healthier. Now, a lot of you are serving in many ways in the church, and that's awesome. Thank you, Lord. Some of you, you've not done it. I want to encourage you. If you are in Christ, part of your identity is to be part of the body. You have a function. You have a role to play in the church. I get a little, one of my pet peeves in life, I'll just share it with you now. I don't, I don't bug people with it too much. 
but when I have the microphone, I can do it. Um, is that when people, you know, when we ask them, how come you're not serving in church? Or, you know, you seem like you love the Lord. You're a real, you know, smart person. You, you got, obviously you got skills and abilities and stuff that, but you're not involved anywhere. You know, like, well, because I serve in the volunteer at this capacity downtown, I go to this place and I, I give myself to the Knights of Columbus and I serve there, or whatever, I don't know, right? Not picking on Knights of Columbus. Well, that's all wonderful, but the Bible is actually clear that God gives the saints all these gifts. He gives us all gifts. Why? For the body. For the church. Right? Now, it doesn't mean you can't serve outside the church. It doesn't mean you can't use your skills and abilities to, to move your career forward or to help others in need or to be involved somewhere else. But the primary reason why God gives us these things is to move the church forward. Right? It's to help the church. The edification of the church. You're part of the body. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Wow. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Right here in the body. This is who we are. Next. You are a saint. Did you know that? You are a saint. I wanted to bring this out today. You know, my Catholic upbringing, when I hear the word saint, I think of some really extraordinary special people. But guess what? That's you. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. Ephesians chapter 1, it says, to God's holy people in Ephesus. The word that's used there in the Greek has been translated in many other versions of the Bible as to the saints in Ephesus. The word there is saints. The Bible describes a saint as God's people. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. But isn't that a nice word, saint, right? Now, if you indulge me for a moment, okay, just because, again, my Catholic upbringing, I just want to, just a little sidetrack here for a moment. Uh, Kate Pickard, who was writing a, a historical piece for the New York Times on, on the canonization of saints, okay, in the Catholic Church, she's writing that the first Catholics revered uh, as saints were martyrs who died under Roman persecution. Uh, these martyrs were honored as saints almost instantaneously after their deaths as Catholics who had sacrificed their lives in the name of God. And over the next few centuries, however, sainthood was extended to those who had defended the faith and led pious lives. Well, with the criteria for canonization, that is the process to become a saint, with the criteria not as strict, the number of saints soared by the 6th and 7th century. A bishop stepped in to oversee the process, and around the year 1200, Pope Alexander II, outraged over the proliferation of the amount of saints, decreed that only the Pope had the power to determine who could be identified as a saint. <laughs> it was not until the 17th century that the Catholic Church finalized their standards in the process, processes for sainthood. Now, Father James Martin summarizes the steps to sainthood or canonization. Here we go. You ready for this? And again, I'm not, I don't want to pick on Catholics, but because, look, when you're a Catholic, once a Catholic, you're always a Catholic, okay? So... <laughs> I can do this because, you know, I was born a Catholic. Once you're a Catholic, you're... Anyways, here we go. The 10 not-so-easy steps to becoming a saint, okay? Number one, be a Catholic. There you go. So all you who are not Catholic, ha, you got no chance. All right. Um, number two, you got to die. Well, that's kind of rotten. All right. Um, number three, a local devotion grows up around your memory. 
Number four, your life is investigated. Number five, your local bishop sends you your case to the Vatican. Number six, pray for a miracle. Number seven, the Vatican investigates the miraculous cure. Number eight, the Vatican declares you blessed. Number nine, pray for another miracle. And then number 10, you're a saint. So I tell you what, the words, okay, okay, I'm making a little bit of fun here, but the word saint means set apart ones. Set apart ones. So are all, these Catholic, are all these Catholic saints set apart ones? Well, I would venture to say that most of them, yes. When you actually read about a lot of these saints, man, these were godly people who did wonderful things for the Lord and helped many people in impoverished and in terrible circumstances. These were certainly set apart ones. But guess what? I would also say that if you are in Christ, so are you. You are a set apart one. That's the whole term of the Bible, that we are saints, we are set apart if we are indeed in Christ. You know, it reminds me of a story I heard one time of a little girl who attended a worship service in a place with a, a big cathedral. It was a place with a lot of stained glass windows. If you can picture this. And the little girl was asked, what is a saint? And her reply was, a saint is a person where the light shines through. Isn't that cute? <laughs> but that's good, though. I like that. If the light of Jesus is shining through you, my friend, you're a saint. A special person in God's eyes, a set-apart one. That's who we are. That's our identity in Christ, okay? We are chosen by God. We're adopted. We're a beloved child. We're forgiven. We are redeemed. We are a member of his body. We are a saint. Hallelujah. And then nextly, um, we are God's masterpiece. I don't know about you, but most days I don't feel like a masterpiece. Um, I feel a little disheveled, if I'm being honest. A lot of days. It says in 2.10, Ephesians 2.10, we read it earlier, that we are God's handiwork. Now, in some translations it says workmanship, and in some translations it says masterpiece. Interesting. Yeah. That's right. She said, masterpieces are worth a lot, worth a lot of money. Commentator Max Andrews says this, okay? I don't have it on the screen, so just follow me for a moment. He says, a sculptor will tell you that he sees his figure in the finest details before he ever begins to chip at the stone. In that sense, he does not just chip away everything, or sorry, in that sense, he does just chip away everything that doesn't look like what he's creating. We are, in a sense, a big block of marble when we become a Christian. God, the great sculptor, knows down to the last detail what he wants that block to look like before he ever begins to work on us. We, however, do not usually have a clear sense of the sculptor's goal. We look at ourselves after God has begun to shape us, but before he has finished his work. And we see that the nice, neat, clean block of stone has been chipped and roughed up, but we do not see the finished product yet. And in this incomplete state, sometimes we conclude incorrectly that, 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 that uh, this is all that there is. That what we are now is all we will ever be. You say, this isn't beautiful. We're talking about it's a masterpiece. You say, this isn't beautiful. This isn't a work of art. But God is not finished with you yet. You reply, this big corner over here doesn't look like it belongs at all. But God isn't finished with you yet. This part is chipped and rough. But God is not finished with you yet. Do you hear me, friends? This part over here hasn't even been touched. 
but God isn't finished with you or I yet. This part needs to be sanded, smoothed, and polished. Boy, I'm reading it this week. I'm studying for this sermon. I'm reading through this, and I'm identifying, Lord, I have some parts that need to be smoothened or polished, refined, Lord. I know that there's parts in me that, that, oh, Lord. But God says, I'm not finished with you yet. You keep at it. Keep your eyes on me. Keep walking in repentance. I'm going to smoothen those areas. I'm going to fix you up real good. (laughs) You see, when... God is finished with us. We will be perfect, a flawless work of art. It says this in the Bible. It says that when we see him, we shall be like him, right? When we go to be with him. And although I don't feel like it a lot of times, like a masterpiece, this is what the scripture tells me, so I'm crazy enough to believe it. The Bible says that he who began a good work in me and in you will see it through to the day of completion, amen? He's not finished with us yet. So what's our part? We need to abide in Christ and to keep moving towards him. Number nine, we're almost done, is that we are an heir. In verse 11, uh, it says that in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. Now, in a lot of other translations, it even says here in the little footnote in the bottom of my Bible that it says in, in, in other translations that we were made heirs. And then it goes on to say in verse 18 that we have a glorious inheritance. And we see it throughout the other areas of the New Testament in the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered in the heart of man the things in which God has prepared for those who love him. We have an inheritance, friends. This is part of our identity. We've already mentioned this a few moments ago in 1 John 3, that we know when when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Revelation 21 says, I want to read this, just take a moment here with me, friends. I just get way too excited reading Revelation. God says, John says in Revelation, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. This is John speaking. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, and on the other side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Can anyone shout amen today? This is the glorious hope that we have. You know, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it, you know what, uh, I got to get my passport renewed, and, and if you guys have passports, you know this is a major piece of identification. Now what's a piece of identification for? It's to prove who you are, it's your identity, right? And really, our identity, you know, if we have a, a spiritual passport, by the way, it will not say Canada, it will say eternity with Christ and heaven with Christ, that's our heavenly passport, if you will, all right? This is really who we are, that's really the country we belong to if we are in Christ. It's part of our identity. We need to know these things. We need to have our hope there. And when this world gets crazy, and it does, sometimes, you know, I look at everything going on in the world and I just shake my head thinking, what? You know, this world is getting crazier all the time. 
but this is not my home country. Heaven is our home. And lastly, the last point is that we are sealed. I'm going to read this in verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When we believed, we were given the seal of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned earlier, friends, um, worship team, are you close? You want to come up, worship team? Yeah, make your way up. I mentioned earlier that um, who we are has a great bearing on what we do. Or at least it should. Our behavior is directly linked to our identity. And the reality is we've gone through this list. It's a wonderful list that should affect how we live. We are chosen by God, adopted, beloved, forgiven, redeemed, member of the body. We are a saint. We're God's masterpiece. We're an heir. But then we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the reality is none of us are going to live the life that we are called to live outside of the power and the working of the Holy Spirit living and working in us and through us. We cannot do it. We are not good enough. You're not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. None of us can do it unless the Holy Spirit, unless we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in our lives. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's wondering, I don't know if I have the Spirit. If you've believed upon Christ, you put your trust in him, you have the Holy Spirit. All right? It's our seal of salvation. Lean on him. Depend on him. Trust in him. Our friend, again, Klein Snodgrass, says this about seals. Seals were used in the ancient world in ways similar to today. Cargo was sealed before shipping or letters were sealed to guarantee the validity of the contents. To guarantee, friends, the validity of a God who's within us. A seal conveyed authenticity and ownership. We belong to God. In this case, the Spirit is the seal given to believers to verify that they belong to God. The Spirit is also a deposit, it says. I don't know if you caught that in Ephesians there. A deposit, the Greek word used here, indicates a down payment that guarantees complete payment. So the Spirit, in other words, is God's first installment on our salvation and the guarantee that the full future inheritance will be delivered. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Does that not make you motivate you to want to live for Christ? Come on now. This is who we are. Don't ever forget it. The world will try to distract us and try to tell us other things, lies about our identity. We talked about it last week. This whole idea of even, I mean, sexual identity. What? My identity is not in my sexuality. It's not in your sexuality. If you're a believer, it's in Christ. Don't listen to the lies of this world. If you are in Christ, find your identity there and it will motivate you. It will empower you. It will help you to live this set-apart life as saints of God that he's calling us to. Why don't we stand this morning and we're going to get out of here in just a moment.
Please just bow our heads just for a moment here today. All right? I promise we're going to get out of here. We have a picnic to go to. Let's just bow our heads here for a moment. I just want to ask a question, and then I'm going to pray. Kind of the linchpin of this sermon, I think, was really when we talked about the love of God. All these ten points, as great as they are, they all kind of hover around the idea of the love of God. Once we settle in our heart, deep down, that God loves us unconditionally, it will change everything, I believe. And some of you today have had a hard time accepting the fact that God loves you in this way. In fact, I would say if God was here in the flesh, in the person right now of Jesus, he would say to you, come here right now. I want to put a big hug on you right now. He would just, he'd just lay a big hug on you and tell you, I love you. No matter your sin, no matter how much you've messed it up, I love you. I know you're hurt. I know your pain, but I love you. I want to heal you. And if you're here today and you would say, you know what, Darren, I've had a hard time accepting God's love. I've put conditions on it. I've perhaps even flat out rejected it. But today I want to I settle that down deep into my heart. I want to get that deeply rooted. Let me tell you, friends, I was already in Bible school before I figured this out. So there's no condemnation here if you haven't figured this out yet. But you need to say, you know what, Darren, I haven't settled this deep into my soul. But I'd like to today. I'm not going to do anything weird with that. I'd love to pray for you. Would you slip up your hand as all heads are bowed and eyes are closed here this morning? Number of hands all over the building here. Just keep your hand up. I'm going to pray in three. If that's you, I'd put your hand up. I want to pray for you. Two, you need to settle God's love down deep in your soul. One, if that's you, raise your hand. Here we go, we're going to pray. Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room today. Lord, for all of us this morning, I pray that the love of God would be deeply rooted in our souls and in our hearts. Lord, for those who got their hands raised, Lord, I pray maybe perhaps for the first time they would have an understanding, a revelation. Lord, you love them. God loves you no matter what. He's in love with you. He's mad about you. There's nothing you could ever do to love him less than he loves you right now. And there's nothing you could ever do to make him love you more. His love is that great. It's that tremendous. He loves you just as you are. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray you would settle that deep down into my brothers and sisters' souls. And for the rest of us here today, I pray that this would be a tremendous reminder, Lord, that we are loved by you. And God, that we have an identity that's found in Christ. And I pray that that would propel us. It would motivate us. It would help us to live for you in the way you're calling each one of us to live. Thank you, God, for who you are. You're a good, good father. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. And God, I pray that's where we would be found today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today. See you at the picnic. God bless you.